What's up, guys? Welcome to the 4040 Vision Podcast, the ultimate sports history pod where hindsight is 4040. Before we jump into today's episode, let's pay some bills and hear from our presenting sponsors. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 4040 Vision Podcast. I'm your host, Colette Abdallah, and I'm joined today by a special guest, Andre Carlisle of the Diaspora United Podcast. How's everything going today? Uh, doing well. Doing well. How are you? I'm um, great, great, and ready to dive in. So today's topic is the Women's World Cup. So we did a bit of a Women's World Cup preview and uh, a pod on the state of women's soccer at the time. And, you know, a lot has changed in the past uh, month or so since we recorded that original podcast. So I wanted to start with, let's start with some of the positives because there's been a lot of uh, negative things that have come out since the, the, the World Cup has wrapped up. But let, I want to hear kind of your, your overall thoughts on the World Cup. And, and obviously, I'm really interested in, t- in wanting to know what it was like being there. Yeah, no, I, and I appreciate you starting here because I, I've, I'm so frustrated that all of the bullshit. I'm sorry if I can't cuss on here. <laughs> but I'm sorry that like all of that has overshadowed what has been great. But it's also important to elevate those things because they need to change. So it's like I'm in two minds of it. So yeah. Um, in terms of overall thoughts and what it was like being there. So I was only in New Zealand. Um, I did not go to Australia, but I was in Wellington for about nine, 10 days. Uh, I spent a couple days in Auckland as well and saw a couple games there. New Zealand did a great job. Like everybody there was really hype about the World Cup being there, really hype about people being there for the World Cup. Just about every Uber ride I took, the other drivers were telling me like they they went to games themselves, you know, they had fun, you know, all of that. So like the vibe was cool, you could tell. And and this this seems like a low bar, right? But you could tell when you step in like into an airport of one of these cities that are hosting games. You could tell that like the Women's World Cup was there and is a big thing. Like it was marketed, it was advertised. Mm-hmm. These things have not always been a given in the women's game, yeah, even the World sure. Cup. So like, yeah, you, you got the feel that this was a big event and it was that was something that it needed needed to do. And I, and I think it was even more so in Australia, where, of course, the whole hype from that national team being so good and they had, to be honest, the bulk of the games but yeah, I thought it was a tremendous event, and I had a lot of fun. Which uh, what games did you go to? Oh, I think I was like five or six. So I was at the oh, U.S. Wow. national okay. team Portugal game, which was uh-huh. hilarious and terrible. Yeah. Um, I was at, geez, uh, Japan. I watched Japan like three times. I saw them uh, play three times, which was fun. Um, I believe I saw South Africa and Italy. I saw Sweden and Argentina. I believe. Um, yeah. And I can't even remember some of the ones like I should have cataloged them all. But yeah, like, like, yeah, it was it was like rapid fire because I caught like the last bit of the group stages. So I went to a few of those games and then there was a break. And then I went to um, a couple round of 16 and then I went to one quarterfinal match. So, um, okay. yeah, it was it was a lot, but it was super fun. That's awesome. And it, w- it was all located kind of in the in the same general area. I know New Zealand's not that big, but. You know, was it in the same general area? Yeah. So Wellington had a, a good chunk of games, which is why I decided to basically base myself there. Um, so they had a good chunk of round of 16 games. They had a good chunk of they had are sorry. They had a good chunk of group stage games. They also had a round of 16 and they had a quarterfinal. Um, but Auckland, which is an hour flight away, uh, they had probably more games uh, than, than Wellington. So that's why I went up there to watch a couple 
uh, including uh, Japan, Sweden, which, you know, broke my heart a little bit. Yeah, that was a tough one. <laughs> uh, what do you think is the the ultimate legacy of the World Cup? Just straight from a footballing perspective, not, not any of the, uh, you know, larger social stuff, but just from the on-the-field product, what do you think the legacy was? On the pitch, I think the legacy is given opportunity – teams from all over the world can ball out it doesn't really matter like um I, I think but but i think that's a dangerous line like you also have to say like level the playing field you know resources paying players things like that like all these other things that come in and, and stories from federations not doing what they're supposed to be doing but yeah i think on the pitch you saw like there were some incredible performances from teams all over the world um, I, I thought that's why I thought it was a little frustrating. We'll get to it, but I was a little frustrated to see the the like last, like the semifinal and the final, just become like completely dominated by European teams because that was not like the the vibe of the World Cup early on. So eventually, it whittled itself down to that. But I think that is that's the gap, right? The gap isn't talent; it's investment. So I think in terms of showcasing that, to me, that's the legacy of the World Cup, which was awesome to see. Yeah, for sure. I think it, there was some questions coming in about, you know, is 32 teams too many? And I think they proved, aside from a couple lopsided scorelines, which you do see in the Men's World Cup too, it's not, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just in the women's. So aside from that, you mentioned some of the, you know, the lesser known teams or the smaller nations, they were able to make some noise and get into the knockout stage and things like that. So we think we know for sure 32 teams is, is uh, definitely not too many. And it was a great, exciting tournament, a lot of upsets especially early on in the group stage. Yeah. And speaking of upsets, what do you think was the, or what were your you know biggest surprises from the group and, and knockout stage? So I think the biggest one is probably Colombia beating Germany. Um, that game was awesome. I was, I, I didn't attend that game, but I was at a fan zone that had like a ton of Colombia fans in it. Uh, and so that was also just a fun vibe uh, to watch the game. But it, I thought that game was so, instructive of like talent level and like how even it is because if you remember that game um what Colombia scores first with that absolutely outrageous goal from Lindy Caicedo who was just outrageous and then Alex Pop equalizes and it's late in the match and you're thinking okay you know that's what a big like that's what a team's gonna do you know uh, Germany with all this heritage all these players that are well known that's what they're going to do. So 1-1, one, one, you know, Pat, Columbia on the back, hard fought. Columbia was like, nah, we want all the points. Right? <laughs> they went out and scored another goal after that. And it was just, it was dope. And the way they scored that goal was funny too, because they completely used their like uh, Germany's kind of very lax zonal marking scheme against them. And just like, we're like, okay, you're going to line up there. We're going to kick the ball here because nobody's here and we're going to get a free header. And they ended up scoring it. So um, I thought that was awesome. Um, there's a couple others I want to highlight, like Nigeria. I thought they had a really good World Cup. Uh, that game against England, they like bossed England. They bossed them. Um, and then they just ran out of gas for the penalty shootout. I wish they could have gotten a goal in open play because they more than deserved one. Same as South Africa. South Africa did great against Netherlands. Uh, I think they had them really stressed out, especially the way that they play on the break. It wasn't just speed. It was like awareness and their ability to like stretch a defense was just great to see um stretch it not not just vertically but but also width wise as well like pull defenders apart uh which is which was a key of their transition play and then you know what i gotta give a shout out to haiti because haiti didn't make it out of the group 
they were bottom of their group. But I think you have to dig in a little bit for context. Haiti, of course, was a team that qualified, had to qualify for the World Cup. So they're in those playoff qualifiers that happened like a month or two before the World Cup actually kicked off. They ended up getting in as one of the final teams. But listen, Haiti did not concede an open play goal until the 100th minute of the final match. It was just penalties that they let in. One was that un- very unfortunate handball when they really could have got a result against England. Um, and then uh, I, I can't remember the one against China, but I also know in that game, they also were denied a couple penalties themselves. So like, even though things didn't go their way, particularly refereeing decisions, I still got to say like that is a hell of a debut for, for Haiti and the way that mm-hmm. they played in every single one of their games, they're scary. They're scary. They're yeah, that was a uh, that was a group that we highlighted as a potential group of death. It ended up going chalk, but yeah. I think it was definitely not as straightforward as as you you know you just looking at the table. You think yeah. okay, Haiti, yeah, whatever, but no, just like you said, they were you know stiff defensively, and they they made the other teams earn it. That that's for yes. sure. Uh, so you mentioned Germany. There's a couple other big teams that didn't make it out of the group stage. I mean, the U.S., you know, basically by the length of the post made it out of the group stage. But um, maybe you're not too disappointed by the U.S. because I think you were, you know, you had some pretty uh, low expectations coming in. But who were some of the big disappointments from, again, either the group or the knockout stage? Yeah, I mean, I, I I can throw the U.S. in there. I mean, I, I didn't. My expectations were low, but it's still frustrating to see a team that talented play that poorly. And I think there were a lot of reasons, and we'll get into that. But uh, but yeah, I, they're absolutely one of the biggest disappointments um, of the of the tournament, which is sad to say. Germany, of course, pretty big disappointment. The funny thing for Germany is that they they almost came in a bit like. You know, like the U.S. always gets the the arrogant tag, right, uh, from from everybody, teams in Europe and everything. The Americans are arrogant. That's just like a blanket thing. And for the most part, it's not untrue. But that doesn't mean arrogance doesn't exist other places. And I think Germany was pretty arrogant uh, in, in a lot of their games. They just felt like, you know what, we're going to keep doing what we do. And we're Germany and we're better. So they didn't do a ton to adjust. Like the Columbia game was fun and funny to look back on and analyze because, Colombia was just like, okay, you have these two hyper-productive wingers. We're just going to double-team them. And Germany was like, okay, we're going to keep giving them the ball and seeing what happens. And Colombia was just like, all right, like play this game if you want. The one time they changed something is when they won, uh, is when they got into the box. And who was it? I believe it was Oberdorf that ran. Their defensive midfielder basically split the defense and ran right into the box. And that was like the one time they really tried something different in that game. So, yeah, there was a little arrogance from Germany there, which I think cost them in the end and why they didn't get out of the group. Um, and then my other disappointment, I hate to say it, but it was Brazil. Um, I really thought that, you know, do it for Marta thing would be like a, a massive rallying thing for that team. It would carry them sort of in the same way that like a home crowd could carry Australia. And apart from scoring, you know, one of the prettiest goals you've ever seen, they just didn't get the results to get through. So it's not even like you can be like, you know, oh, it just didn't happen for them or or another team caught fire. They just underperformed in big in the big moments when they really needed to get three points. And that was that was disappointing. Yeah, those are two teams that you circled as, you know, potential uh not quite dark horses, but teams that you thought could yeah. make a run. 
I mean, Germany, they got kind of spoiled by the South Korea performance at the end. And it's yeah. similar with, with Brazil. They were held out by Jamaica, but Jamaica made it out of the group stage. So it's yeah. not like they were uh, on their way out. So it seemed like it was a, a deserved disappointment for Germany because they, but yeah. and Brazil was, you know, a little bit harsher because they were still in the mix. So I think we, we want to shift gears now to kind of the big story that has come out. I mean, we, we've gotten to this point. We haven't even talked about who won the World Cup uh, because of, unfortunately, everything that has overshadowed uh, the you know incredible victory by the the, the Spanish women. So I, I think, you know, as a casual fan myself, I did not know about any of this, you know, insane drama that was going on leading up to the World Cup for the Spanish Federation and uh, the players that, that essentially boycotted the team. Hmm. Can you give us a little bit of a background on – you know, what happened there and, and how we got to this point? Yeah, it's a, it's a long story. What I would say is I would encourage people to kind of like find, there are a few people who have uh, outlets who have posted like timelines of events. And I think those are good things to go through just to see how long this has been going on. But yeah, it kind of started and who knows where it actually began. Cause it does seem like even the coach before Jorge Vilda, who is the current coach, Still, apparently, I don't know when this is going out, but he's still the coach for now. Um, even the, he, he was, they got him out of there, and and he was the the coach prede- predecessor. I think it was Karada is his uh, was his last name, and um, he was he was notorious for being um, is creating a toxic environment as well for the team. So this has been going on for a while, but what happened with this particular team and the lead up to this particular World Cup is about a year and a half, maybe even two years ago. Um, it was called Lost 15. There are 15 players who said that they were not going to play for the Spanish national team. They wanted changes, and they wanted a lot of changes um, to the professionalism. They said they didn't feel like they were too ready for games, but like the environment was toxic. There were reports of head coach Jorge Vilda not uh, allowing them to close their hotel room doors until he checked, you know, and, and things like that. Like these are grown women being treated like, you know, camp kids and they're like six years old. And so, like, there were there were reports of toxic environments like that, and they wanted changes. And the Federation, as you, we all now see how emboldened they are when they get pressure, said, absolutely not. We don't care. We're just not going to call you up. And then said, and if you're going to get back in our good graces, you're going to need to write an apology letter. Like, they really took this to, like, a, like treating them like children. And... Leading up to the World Cup, as it got more real, I believe seven of the 15 said, okay, we're going to make ourselves available for selection. Three of those seven were actually selected, four weren't. Eight said, no, we're still not doing it. Um, some big names too. Mafi Leon is probably one of the best center backs in the world. She did not go to the World Cup. Patrick Guiaro is one of the best defensive midfielders in the world. She did not go to the World Cup. So there were some big misses from Spain, which shows you also, also how depth their ta- the depth of their talent. Like they're in, and in, there's like golden generation. Then there's like what's after gold, diamond, platinum, platinum. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there, there's a there's a massive like there's just loads of talent in that in that team. But um, so that happened, and then of course the whole thing with Jenny Hermoso happened, uh, where he forcibly kissed her on stage. They had a terrible reaction to that. Everybody thought uh, Rubiales, who's the president of the federation, was going to resign. And he's just like banging the table, yelling, I will not resign. And then getting claps from Jorge Vilda and others in the Federation. So, yeah, it's just been a tremendous mess exacerbated by the continued brazenness of the Federation. 
really what they're doing right now is just kind of showing everybody the depth of the rot within the Federation. So mm-hmm. now people know that it's not just down to one guy. One guy yeah. may be very powerful and influential in this Rubiales dude, and he very much needs to go, but it's not getting fixed. It's not getting better with just him leaving. It's got to be more. Yeah. And, and as of today, it's it's uh, August 28th. We're recording. Jorge Villa is still the coach. Rubiales yeah. is still you know entrenched as the president of the Federation. Though uh, he is apparently still suspended by FIFA for yeah. 90 days. So that did happen, which was FIFA did a thing. Imagine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they're threatening legal action against Hermoso. They are threatening to leave UEFA. Um, so they're they're just going down this insane road of just doubling down on this behavior where, you know, I, I think I could I could understand if they're denying something that happened behind closed doors because there's some plausible deniability. But this was literally in front of the world, you know, right on stage. Yeah. I don't know how, how many millions, hundreds of millions of people watching, but yeah. it was just very brazen and blatant. And of course, you know, they're doubling down on it. And I think what has been kind of encouraging. I, I understand a lot of people have not come out uh, against this and, and made their statement, but I feel like a lot of people have, and I feel like this could become kind of a watershed moment for, for women in sports, not just women's soccer, but just women in sports. I mean, am I overstating the potential impact of this? I don't think you're overstating it, but uh, I think the, so there's two, there's two ways to look at it. And I think both are valid. So the first way is that from apparel companies to federations to broadcasters, there is an underestimating of the women's football community that happens consistently. And we are seeing that that has very serious consequences. You are seeing a lot of solidarity for Jenny across the world. It's not just Europe. Of course, it's in the U.S. The NWSL players wrote Contigo Jenny on the wristbands. Um, There were signs in the stands. I was at Spirit Game yesterday. There were signs in the stands, multiple signs from the supporters groups, but also to just fans who showed up with Contigo Jenny written on him, uh, which means I'm with you, Jenny, is what it translates to. Um, We saw in the Mexican League, Liga Mekis Femenil, same thing. Uh, Wristbands, you know, banners, people saying, you know, they're with Jenny. Um, (laughs) We saw the Norway and Finland, their national, their federations put out statements in support of Jenny Hermoso. So like we're seeing this everywhere. This is a this is a full on thing. And I think that when you see like that's the power of women's football. Um, And I think it's important to note. The other thing, though, is that look what it took. Right. (laughs) That's the other thing that's frustrating. Like I talked about the 15, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, had they been listened to. Jenny wouldn't have had to be assaulted in front of a global television audience for everybody to be like, oh, that federation has some problems. And then everything else they've done after that, everybody's like, oh, there's a whole lot of problems here beyond just one person, which is kind of what they've been trying to say. But when they said that, it was more even especially treated in the Spanish media as like shocking, breaking news, as opposed to actually doing the work to find out what was going on, talking to the players to figure out what has been happening. So I'm hopeful, of course, the the catalyst to all of this was them winning the World Cup. We have to say that they won the World Cup. But there are plenty of teams embattled with their federations that did not win a World Cup. Some did not get out of the group stages. Some lost in the round of 16. Like every single round had a team, uh, a national team that has some legitimate beef with their federation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's more than beef. It's like you're mistreating us. Right. So like. 
there's got to be more to it than that. And I just, I don't know what to do about the fact that this stuff only happens when they win. Like the U.S. Women's National Team only got equal pay after they won the 2019 World Cup. And now it looks like Spain's Federation, hopefully the end of this is it getting cleaned up. But if it does, that will be great. But it will also only have happened because they won the World Cup. And that can't just, that can't be the only catalyst to making change in these federations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost as if not almost as if it it, it is if uh, you know that these women have to work twice as hard to enact some kind of change. It's not enough just to be you know mistreated or whatever. You have to show that you're you know quote unquote worthy of the national attention or the global attention to you know your, the cause that you're, uh, you're you're speaking out about. I mean, you mentioned some of the other teams, I and mean, we don't need to go down a long list, but you know, what are some of the other challenges that we've seen? Uh, you know, women's teams face in international football, whether it's funding or, you know, something far more sinister than that. But can you give us a couple examples? Yeah, a lot of it is funding related, like Nigeria. Um, they've had a lot of issues being paid on time for, for their performances, being paid at all for their performances. Uh, there was a quote from Ifi Anamano, who plays for um, Gotham FC in the NWSL. She said they were sharing beds during the World Cup. These are grown women sharing beds during the World Cup. That's probably not great for recovery as well. Like they're, they're just very simple things that like make sure you get enough hotel rooms for the players. Traveling the games as well. It's very important. What? How are you traveling? Are you taking a bus versus a, a team that's going to fly? Like these are these are you know big things that can affect performance overall. Some of it is also sexual misconduct. There are a couple people or or one dude in particular. And I forget his name, but in um, Haiti who was already banished from the Federation for being accused of, or not accused, but found to have sexually abused players. And he's apparently back with a, power, a position of power within the Federation. And it's just shoulder shrug because people want him back. Um, thinking of Canada, Canada's having their own problems. Their Federation says they don't have any money. The, the players want to know, where is the money? We, we won a gold medal at the World Cup. Or not the World Cup at the Olympics, uh, which was supposed to be the 2021 Olympics, but well, 2020 Olympics, but played in 2021. And then they didn't even get out of the group stage in this. So you just see like the impact this is what I mean about winning and how it can sometimes not always and shouldn't be a catalyst at change. Then winning a gold medal didn't do anything for them and they didn't have the resources to properly train. They were missing. I don't think they even had games before the World Cup. Like they may have played like a closed door game, perhaps when they were there, but they didn't have any games. And they certainly didn't have any games in Canada, which you could probably make money by scheduling a, a very successful, very talented team, you know, right? So it's just stuff like that that's not happening. This just no brainer stuff on the men's side. Mm -hmm. And some of it's just downright gross stuff, like what I mentioned with Haiti and the, and the abusive players. So it's a range and it's many teams and it's teams and players that you think and you've heard of that are like, household names if you follow the sport, but also some that aren't and they all need attention and it's and it's yeah. tough. Yeah, and I, I believe I read about the the Zambia head coach being accused of, of yeah, some misconduct or mm -hmm. uh, assault as well. So yeah, I mean and I think when you're talking about the knockout stages when you're talking about late in these big tournaments, it's really these fine margins where you're talking about players not being treated correctly, players not, you know, getting given the right resources that's when these things matter and that's when these things yeah. really show up. And, you know, I, I think we've seen that if you give the right funding and attention to women's sports, they'll thrive. 
And yeah. it's just as simple as that. And if you choose to deny it, you can make up a billion excuses. Oh, people don't care. People don't want to watch whatever it is. None of that matters. It's all bullshit. If you, yeah. if you give it a, the right attention and the funding, people will come. Yeah. So let's talk about disappointments once again. The United States <laughs> women's national team. Coming into the World Cup, you rated your confidence uh, in them winning the whole thing at around a four or five. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you were pretty spot on. <laughs> so, you know, what went wrong? Where where did this team fall short? Everything. Um, <laughs> and I don't say that in terms of, like, player performances, because I think play, most of the players did as good a job as they could do given the situation they, they were put in. And it, but it's frustrating because it didn't have to be this way. Like, even though I've been frustrated with the way the team is playing, when I was playing and I, I, leading in the lead up to the world cup, even I didn't expect them to play as poorly as they did throughout the world cup. So looking at it, breaking it down, it's really kind of stems from leadership. So the coaching staff, team selection, um, asking, you know, not understanding your personnel, having them do certain things. There were just so many different things that were confusing about this World Cup that even I couldn't have predicted. Like I knew that things weren't great, even at the be- in the best case of scenarios. But like Ashley Sanchez, who has been Roosevelt's backup for probably two years now um zero minutes at this world cup yeah doesn't make and any she's a sense. dynamic attacking player right? absolutely when you need goals yeah she's very good in fact when she came back from the world cup she subbed subbed on for the washington spirit and scored within 40 seconds of her subbing to the yeah. <laughs> so like she's definitely in revenge mode but also that's just what she does and so, and Roosevelt was injured for the first couple matches, and then she picked up a yellow card, a double yellow card, or yellow card suspension, not double yellow card, but she missed a match as well. And Sanchez still, in the face of all of that, got zero minutes. Alana Cook, who had been Naomi Gar- Garma's center back partner for the majority of Black Coast tenure, he kind of rotated in Becky Sauerbrunn from time to time, but she was injured and didn't make the World Cup roster. You would expect, okay, Garma and Cook are going to go for it wrong. Alana Cook played zero minutes as well during this World Cup. So he went with a brand new 11, had Julie Ertz playing center back, a position she hasn't played consistently since probably pre-pandemic. And it's just asking things like asking Alex Morgan to kind of drop and play more as a false nine. Not her game. She's 33. She's a target forward right now. That She's great at it. Let her do that. Give her the service to do that. But if you want a false nine, Sophia Smith plays the nine for Portland Thorns. It's it's the kind of game that she plays. Why not move her central? When he would do that, sometimes late in games, you would see a fluidity there. And it never stuck. It was like something that never stuck in his mind that like, oh, this actually makes things look better. To him, I guess it was just tired legs from defenders instead of actual cohesion from an attacking unit. Strange conclusion, in my opinion. Um, Savannah DeMello, a great player. I love that she made the World Cup roster. She's deserved it. She's been playing well ever since her rookie year, uh, which was a season uh, a season ago. Um, she was great. Picked up this season, been playing great as well. But her greatness has kind of been on display for a while, and he didn't bring her in until the, the send-off game, and then she started two back-to-back World Cup games. First of all, 
tremendous credit to her. This is not slighting her in any way because I think she certainly deserved to be on the squad, but he missed a chance to actually integrate her into the squad. She's basically a brand new player playing in midfield, kind of an important position, right? To have no cohesion, no no familiarity with the rest of the, the team, her teammates. So not only getting her used to the system, but getting everybody used to her. And so there are just so many ways that the team was just set up not to succeed. And it was really frustrating to watch, even more frustrating than I thought it would be. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned DeMello. She started the first two games, didn't play a minute after that. Um, Alyssa Thompson did not play um, anything. Any, I think she played maybe one or two minutes in one of the yeah, matches. She a handful of maybe like 11, I think, including yeah. stoppage. But yeah. And then Sanchez, you mentioned, is this you know supposedly dynamic score player that they just for some reason couldn't couldn't uh find room for um and i think you mentioned this going in as like maybe your primary concern was style not fitting personnel Mm -hmm. and i mean how do you think that that bore out i mean obviously we we saw the results but what was the most kind of egregious example uh, of this Oh, the midfield probably (laughs) um the way the midfield played and and just some of the players you know, Alex Morgan was not in great form. She don't believe she scored at the World Cup. She missed a penalty. And, you know, it's like, if that's happening, I understand she's Alex Morgan, but you need goals, you need results, you need to figure out something to do. Midfield, you know, it was well written about, but these issues were there well before they popped up at the World Cup. I believe many people called it, you know, prayer circle midfield or, you know, uh, um, uh, I forget what a couple of the others were called. But, yeah, just like a big big hole in midfield. And this is where Andy Sullivan, I think, bore the brunt of people's criticism because she'd been left alone on an island in midfield by design. Lindsay Oran and Roosevelt or whoever else was playing the 10 were told to go forward, which that's great for a 10 but your number eight in that midfield three needs to be truly box to box. But pushing them up high just to create overloads doesn't really help when you don't have anybody to like carry the ball or distribute the ball to the attack. Like that's why midfielders doing late arriving runs is late arriving. It's not early arriving, right? You don't want to be up there too early because then you're leaving a big goal, a big gap. And when the ball is turned over, now there's no there's no resistance except for one person playing in midfield and then they're right at the back line. So Andy Sullivan got a lot of crap for that, but we saw the same thing in just about every single every single World Cup game except the game against Sweden, which we saw or heard Lindsay Oran tell um, Tobin Heath and Kristen Press they started their show, their own show during the World Cup called the Recap Show, uh, and she was a guest after the World Cup, and she said that 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 game they basically decided to do their own thing, and it worked, and so the coaching staff was like, keep doing it. The thing they figured out was like, have a midfield, right? Like be able to pass to one another in midfield and then distribute the ball to the attack. So that's what they did. And that's also helped them defensively. Now you had more resistance if a team turns the ball over or you're just closer to be able to counter press, do things like that. So it seems basic. It's frustrating the team had to like do that on their own, but that was their best performance of the World Cup. And it kind of speaks to how, poorly they were set up in 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 just about every single way Mm -hmm. leading into this world cup and certainly in this world cup where some very strange decisions were made yeah there was a lot of second guessing and i think it was well deserved considering the results i mean they they seemed solid defensively they gave up one goal in in four games um 
and that was uh, I think early in the in the Netherlands game. Uh, you know, the two hundred twenty minute matches, or sorry, one hundred twenty minute match, and they you know, didn't concede a goal against a really good Sweden team. So I guess that part of it worked out, <laughs> which I guess is good for you know uh, maybe a, a not a not a tournament style type uh, setup, but. Yeah, it seemed like there was no cohesion. There was no goal scoring. They also only scored, you know, aside from the Vietnam match, which was its own story, they only scored one goal after that. Mm-hmm. And I believe it wasn't even from open play. It was a, a header from Lindsey Horan against, also mm-hmm. against the Netherlands. So there was all this attacking power, attacking backup, you know, on the bench. And it just, for whatever reason, was not being, uh, you know, utilized. So do you think there was maybe an over-reliance on some of the old guard I know a lot of people kind of shook their heads at, at Megan Rapinoe making that uh, not quite a cameo appearance, but uh, for appearance for extra time against Sweden. And I know Alex Morgan took a lot of stick for for her performance. So was it an over-reliance on, on that generation? I mean, I think it was many things, but yeah, that's one of them. Um, even talking to Vlatko, you know, in pressers ahead of the World Cup, you know, asking him, you know, why is Megan Rapinoe going? the way he would answer the question was she's going to be, she's important for like locker room stuff, you know, getting the, we have a very young team. She's going to help them like figure out like how you, what do you, what you need to do at a world cup to play your best on on game days? Like how do you need to like treat your body? When do you need to rest? When do you need to pick things back up? Like how do you need to do things, especially given that they were going to be so far away from any time zone that was familiar to them. Right. So that's what we heard. And it was just like, Okay, I, I could see that. All right. Like it is quite a bit of turnover. And in fact, had there not been injuries, there probably would have been even more turnover on the squad. But then Megan Rapino played a lot more minutes. Certainly played a hell of a lot more minutes than Ashley Sanchez, right? <laughs> played a lot more minutes than Alyssa Thompson. And she wasn't really productive. And kind of the same thing with Alex Morgan, not really productive. And it was strange to see. Um, especially from those two players. But it was also like with one of them, you told us that's not what you brought her for, right? So I don't really understand why going to her in those moments was was the thing to do other than panic or a reliance on saying, you know, the history of a player as opposed to current form. So I think there were elements of that, but more than anything, it's just like you mentioned the talent on the bench. There was also plenty of talent in every starting eleven. Uh, even though I would have made a couple changes myself to to many of the starting 11s that we went out with. But there was still enough to be able to have a, if you had a cohesive plan and if you had a way for players to know what they were doing uh, with one another on the pitch, this could have been a very different tournament. And I think you look at Spain and England, look at some of the ways that they played and even Spain getting torn apart by Japan I think this was for the U.S. a competent U.S. team with a competent coach and a and a, a decent structure. It could have been a winnable World Cup, and that's what's so frustrating. We had the mm-hmm. talent to win, and instead, here we are. Yeah, and I mean, it's something that you you pointed out in in the preview pod was the the gap or the battle between the two generations, and there's this big gap. There's just all these you know young stars that are coming up. There's the older generation. Uh, I mean, I think when it came down to it, when, you know, his back was against the wall, he was, he just went to old reliable and that's Megan yeah. Pino. And, you know, once upon a time, she's one of the best players, if not the best player in the world. And it's just not, that's just not who she is anymore. And that that's totally fine. And I think that the irony is like, despite all this, they lost on, 
you know, one of the most absurd <laughs> penalties I've ever seen where it was quite literally like a fingernails width, maybe even less <laughs> than that over the yeah. line. So, you know, it's fine margins again in, in the knockout stages. And if you do have a better coach, you have someone that's mm-hmm. maybe uh, a little better at squad rotation, maybe willing to take more risks with younger players. Then I think, you know, like you said, it, it was a winnable world cup for this yeah. team. And, and of course with all the, with all the talent they have, so right now, I think they don't have a coach as of now. So what's what's next for this team? I mean, do you know, do you have any candidates that you know they're looking at, or that you think they should be looking at? And what's next for this you know new generation of of stars that are coming up? So what's next for the team? Uh, interim coach Twilight Kilgore, I believe, is is taking over for the friendlies that you'll see in uh, September and probably October. Um, Kate Margraff was the general manager for the U.S. Women's National Team. She went along with Vlatko. Um, I believe they both, quote unquote, resigned, whatever. Um, I think I think U.S. soccer is also doing some internal like organizational shakeups because Matt Crocker is not like he's he led the coaching search for the men's team and he's doing the same thing for the women's team. So it seems like they're probably not looking to fill that GM role on the women's side. So structurally, we'll have to see what happens, um, what happens there. But in terms of coaches that I know they're looking at, don't know, have no idea. Um, I would assume that there are a few names on the list. Like I know that there were reports that they've tried to contact uh, the England's FA for Serena Vigman, who they just laughed and were like, haha, no, um, which you would get. She's a very good coach, even though I think she made some mistakes in the final that probably cost them a World Cup. Uh, but she'd been great before that, and they won the Euros. Um, Laura Harvey was in, like, final round contention along with Vlatko when it came to finding Jill Ellis's successor. She's currently the coach at OL Reign, so there's a possibility that she's still interested in that. She did coach the under-20s for a spell, and that team had Naomi Gurma, Sophia Smith, so she's got a lot of familiarity with a lot of the younger players who are meant to be, like, the new, like the rocks of the new generation. Uh, so uh, those are a couple names, but also, I mean, I've heard rumors of all kinds of names, like Akeda, the J- uh, coach from Japan. First of all, language barrier, have no idea if he speaks English and also don't know if he'd be willing to leave that federation because he was also the youth national team coach there, got promoted to the senior team. And that's when that team started playing better because they have a young generation of talent, I believe, the majority of their players who were standouts were under 25. Uh, so they have a very good young generation that he's probably going to continue to want to build with. So, yeah, this is going to be interesting um, to see where they go, see what they want. I know, I've know i read the jokes out there that it's going to be Greg Berhalter again because <laughs> Matt Crocker's leading the search again. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious to see who it's going to be. Uh, Tony Gustafson as well. He was, he was, uh, I believe, on the staff with Jill Ellis. He was the coach of Australia. He's an interesting prospect. I like him and his personality, but with Australia, they really look to play on the counter, and that's mm-hmm. not something that this team should be doing, the U.S. team. So it's going to be interesting to see what they prioritize. Yeah. I'm sure it's uh, going to be the most, if, if, one of, if not the most, you know, highly coveted jobs Sure. Uh, but yeah, we might just end up with Vlatko back again. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> if, if, if recent in fact, I'm waiting for yeah. a club team to hire him just so like that's like, no, we're not doing that again. <laughs> so you're worried it's a real possibility. Okay. 
<laughs> I don't think it is. I mean, yeah. I, I, that that seems like you round of 16 earliest exit ever for the U.S. Mm-hmm. team in a in a World Cup. I don't think you survive that and, and get yeah. to come back. So, yeah, no, no for sure. Yeah. Totally joking, totally joking. Um, so, but before you know, we t- we talked a little bit about um, some of your predictions uh, with the group of death. Um, mm-hmm. The one that you pointed out, which was uh, you know right on point, was Group B, and that mm-hmm. was Australia, Canada, Nigeria, and the Republic of Ireland. And I think you know if it went chalk, it would have been Canada, probably Australia, and then you know maybe Nigeria finishing bottom. But it ended up being Nigeria advancing out of that group. Mm-hmm. So what, any thoughts on, uh, on that prediction? Cause you got that one, right? <laughs> um, no, I mean, it was just, it, it's, it's tough with, you know, I thinking about where Canada was at with their federation and their preparation for the world cup that also impacted kind of what I thought the, the wild card for me was Republic of Ireland because they have a very talented team, but they also have a coach who has some question marks in her past. Um, so not that I've heard anything from that Ireland camp, but I also don't think she's a fantastic tactician uh, type of coach. So I wish they would have because they almost played a game that they didn't have to play. You know, it's just like Ireland, everybody expects that team to play rough. And 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 when you have like Katie McCabe as one of your star players, you're going to. she That's kind of her brand. But I also thought that they had enough talent and skill to play. And we saw that in some games when they would go down a goal, then they open things up and you're like, where the hell did this come from? And I think it was just that battle. So I think then if they find another coach who actually can enhance their on ball qualities and let them play the way that they can, because a lot of those players are quite good um, and can play a different style than just, you know, being completely defensive and trying to hit on the counter would have been interesting but yeah that that was really those two things are really my why i was like ooh, this one might not go the way people think yeah yeah that was definitely definitely didn't go chalk <laughs> we'll say that um and then you know there was a couple teams you mentioned we already talked about brazil germany and canada being being some of the disappointments not not advancing um you did call out japan as a team mm-hmm. to watch i think they were outside of the maybe top six or seven in terms of mm-hmm. the favorites um, and they, you know, made a nice little run. What did you make of, of their performance at the World Cup? Best team of the World Cup for me. Um, their performances were absolutely incredible. The way that they 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 have a style that fits their talent, and they have a lot of very young uh, and very talented players. And so the one time they messed up was that first half against Sweden, and they they kind of went to. A different, a different style, put a different player on that left side when they had had Junendo over there who provided not only some pretty strong and, and aggressive defensive capabilities, but more, more than that, an outlet. Um, and there were just a lot of times where their place with Hina Seguido, who is a great player. She plays for Portland Thorns. She's very, very good, but it's just different. The, the type of cohesion that that team had and they built together it's hard to just plug different players in. And from all accounts, Endo was healthy. He just wanted a different profile over there and it didn't work out. Um, So I'm frustrated about that, but yeah, ultimately the way that they played, the way that they manipulated defenses, the way that they were able to stretch defenses both vertically and horizontally was very fun. And they would do it quickly to, you know, get the ball in the space behind and then you have somebody else, you know, then the defense kind of shifts to cover over and then you have somebody making a vertical run in between a gap and then you send the ball across and you find them. 
they tore Spain apart doing that multiple times, and they didn't even need to touch the ball a lot. We'll talk about that game later. But, um, yeah, they were the most fun side to watch in the entire mm-hmm. World Cup. Yeah, like I said, you said, they tore Spain up, and they uh, played a really aesthetically pleasing brand uh, of soccer, I think. And yeah. it's uh, it, when you beat the champion 4-0, <laughs> then you're doing something right. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're going to switch switch gears a little bit, go into a little bit of a lightning round. So I'm going to ask you a question just – you know, first thing comes to mind, what was your favorite game from the group stage? Easy. Japan, Spain. <laughs> For the reasons we just talked about. 4-0, and you can look at the possession stats on that one. I think they had, like, maybe four touches in the box in the first half, um, mm-hmm. and I think two or three of them were goals. Like, <laughs> they just completely said, okay, fine, you can do your 1,000 passes, do whatever you do, Spain. When we do take the ball off of you, we know exactly how to counter and the spaces we're going to exploit. And they pulled it off expertly. It was mm-hmm. I was at that game live. Funniest game I've ever been to. I was in the stands having like a blast. That game was mm-hmm. hilarious. Yeah, it was a great watch. I think for me, France, Brazil, maybe just for the Another level of, of soccer being played, and then South Africa, Italy for the, for mm-hmm. the drama. Yeah. Uh, favorite game of the knockout stage? Ooh, that is a tough one. Oh, especially because so many of them didn't go the way I wanted them to go. <laughs> um, oh, you know what? I think it's Australia, France. Um, just because that game was wild, that penalty kick shootout is legendary. I believe it was what twenty penalties taken between yep, both teams. It was insane! I've never seen anything like that before. <laughs> it was incredible, and. and the quality of many of the penalties, like, yeah, you had a couple that were bad. Like even Sam Kerr had a pretty bad one, but she scored it. And I was scared to death. I was like, please don't miss a penalty <laughs> in, in the Australian World Cup. Please don't do that. Um, but like, yeah. And then there were some incredible goalkeeping as well. I'm thinking of uh, Mackenzie Arnold when she, when she saved one. Then they had the VAR review and said that she had, you know, came off her line too early. She had to go again and she saved it again. I think another French keeper as well, which was substituted on before, specifically for the penalty kick shootout. She was incredible throughout the entire shootout and had one of the best saves I've ever seen in a shootout where she was like diving, reached behind her and just like palm of stone, just just smacked the ball straight down. I don't know how she had enough power in her arm after diving for the ball midair to be able to stop a shot that was struck quite with, with, with quite a bit of venom. Like that was... That was fun. That penalty shootout was, I hate them, but that was a fun one. <laughs> that Yeah, that may have been the game of the tournament. I mean, anytime you get the, the keepers okay. involved in penalties, it's always, uh, yeah. well, like the late stage keepers when you talk about you come to the whole team. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, we could talk about Alyssa Nayer and her kind of legendary moment oh, that unfortunately that was, awesome. was overshadowed, but that was really cool to see that yeah. as a keeper myself. That was that was awesome to watch. Yeah. Um, favorite goal. I know this is a tough one. There's a ton of goals scored, but favorite goal. You can give me two if you want. Can I give you four? (laughs) (laughs) Please do. Sure. Uh, Linda Caicedo versus Germany. Just watch the way she sets up two German defenders. Go back and watch that goal. It's incredible. Marta Cox's uh, for Panama. Her free kick against France. Outrageous. Had to be close to 40 yards out. Halfway line almost. Yeah. (laughs) Just absolutely punished the ball. And it was pinpoint top corner. It was incredible. Sam Kerr's banger versus England. The, The sound... The sound in the stadium from that shot hitting the back of the net, it was a banger as well. Plus, she torments Mary Earps in the league and did it again on the World Cup stage. Made me very happy as a Chelsea fan. Um, And then uh, Brazil versus Panama. 
that goal that they scored that was like just perfect epitome of Brazilian play, Brazilian flair. I think there were two back heels in the buildup of that play. It was like Tamirez to Dabinia to Adriana, back to Dabinia to Ari Borges, who was already had two goals and could have just tapped it in for a hat trick. She flicked the ball backwards to be a Zanarato for a goal. It was it was the best move, the best sequence of play. With with all due respect to Japan, <laughs> that was the best sequence uh, sequence of play that we saw all tournament. Yeah, that was easily the best team goal. I mean, I, I'm a fan of of the individual goals, like the golasos that make you kind of want to like get up and fight somebody because they were so crazy. <laughs> right. um, Lauren James against Denmark, that was incredible. Mm. Yes. Uh, but Which Sam one? Kerr, <laughs> yeah, right. the one against Denmark. That I think that was top yeah. of the box. Um, yeah, it, not quite upper ninety, but it was just a perfectly placed shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a shame that she didn't get to to play for those two games. But yeah, and then the Sam Kerr one. You mentioned the noise and just. Mm-hmm. The buildup, the anticipation of her making that run, and just the yeah. moment, I think, you know, obviously they end up losing that game, and she doesn't have the best game. You know, she probably could have had four goals that, that, that night, but that goal was just incredible. It's everything, like, encapsulated about her and the yeah. desire and the skill and everything that she has. Just an incredible moment. Uh, favorite player to watch or players? You can give me four. <laughs> yeah, <if laughs> All right, good. It's, I was gonna, it's really hard to answer these with just one player. Okay, so... Mara Ramirez, um, striker for Colombia, she was left on an island a lot, uh, intentionally by some of their game planning, but like she was so good. So good. She said she was so difficult to mark. She stressed the hell out of Germany's center backs, which was funny. Um, but she's she's strong, she's quick, you know, with acceleration. Very good with the ball too. Both feet, just just be able to evade defenders coming towards her. So it's just kind of like in terms of liking to watch her, like having a good time. It was just like she she could like toy with defenders, and that's what made it fun. Like they're they're panicking because she has the ball in a dangerous position. They want to win it back, and she's strong enough and skilled enough with her feet to just kind of like one one rondo just keep the ball away from them which is just very 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 fun to watch um and she has a powerful shot i'm I'm mad she didn't score a goal because she had like a foot cannon if if one of those would have hit the back of the net it might have been a goal tournament just because of the velocity um june endo mentioned her with japan exceptional player super tricky on the ball Super silky, had one of the assists, I think the assists of the tournament. It was just that left footer that curled around multiple defenders and right into the path of, I believe it was Miyazawa, um, who ended up winning the golden boot. Outstanding on that left side. Such a good player. Um, Timby Katlana for South Africa. Just a terror. Just an absolute terror in transition. Uh, and then also just being able to like, press uh hard as well but every time she got the ball like especially thinking of that netherlands game they were terrified and honestly south africa could have scored many goals um a, a couple of goals from some of the positions that she put them in she's very very good and my last one i'm gonna go with um teresa Avalera, who was the uh defensive midfielder for spain outrageous she had an outrageous tournament i mean just composed control the middle of the pitch I mean, every single, like all of her stats just jump off the page. Like she was definitely like player of the tournament caliber uh, mm-hmm. from that position too. That's hard to do, uh, but yeah. she was excellent in this World awesome. Cup. 
I'm going to pick one. Is Selma, I believe it's Paralelo. Para- oh, Paralelo. Yes. Uh, yes. That's yeah. a good one. I mean, she's a great story. Came from, used yeah. to be a track and field star. Now she's, mm-hmm. uh, she went from kind of an impact sub, scored some game winning goals. And then obviously, you know, she started in the final, I believe. So she was just a, a delight to watch. I think she's only, what, 19, 20 years old? Yep. Only so 19. Had- and this was, I think, her third World Cup because she played in the under 20s and under 17s as well. Yeah. <laughs> and sporting think- those two. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because the, the breakout <laughs> star for me, uh, I don't want to steal the thunder, was Caicedo. No. And she had the yes. same kind of uh, story where she, I think she's only 17, which is insane to think about. But who's your breakout star, again, or stars of the tournament? Yeah, so Caicedo jumped on people's radar, especially like club level, level a, a little while. That's why she's at Real Madrid right now. So like they, they absolutely were like, okay. So yeah, she's 18 right now, but still, that's a great one. She's incredible. Uh, Esme Brutz, um, the she kind of was playing wing back for Netherlands. Outrageous! I, she I had like that's... three bangers from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, she had a carbon yeah. copy one too, where she was like, "That felt real good. I'm going to do it again." Um, but yeah, like she was so good at that wing back role. So I think that just lets you know if you need her to play as like a kind of up and down the flank winger, she can do that. If you're going to have her play as a wing back, you can. Might be a terrible job to have her just as a, a waste, just to have her as a pure fullback, unless you're really going to dominate possession. But yeah, um, she already signed to Barcelona, so we'll see where they put her. But yeah, she was quite good. Um, Hinata Miyazawa, I think the golden boot winner, her runs from midfield are, were great, or just like through the, through the uh, central defense. It's funny because if you look at her shot map, Basically, every single goal that she scored was right around the penalty area. <laughs> it was just like she was so good at being able to time those runs to where she just like she does all the work before she has to even like contact the ball. Yeah. So super smart player, super fun to watch, especially the way that Japan would move the ball. And all of a sudden you see a pass go forward and you're like, who was that to? And then there <laughs> she is breaking the line. You're like, oh, that's just sweet. It looks so good. Um and then Kira Cooney Cross for um, Australia. She was great in midfield. I believe she's only 21 as well. So like a really, really good player composed on the ball. Passing range is outrageous. Like she's going to be one like on the national stage. I mean, clearly is already on an international stage, but like as she continues to grow, she's going to be a hell of a problem. And so I'm really excited to see uh, her from from here on out. And she may... May, there's a rumor that she might end up at Chelsea, which, of course, oh. I fully endorse. Yeah, fingers <laughs> crossed. So I think one of the the constant messages we see after these World Cups where the interest in, in women's football is, is at its peak is that, you know, it doesn't end when the World Cup ends. It, it continues mm-hmm. on. I know you're, you know, a big fan of, of women's soccer and you're a champion for, you know, women's football, women's sports in general. So where can we folks follow you? Where can they see more women's soccer? Where can they see some of these stars that we've discussed uh, shine for their clubs? Yeah, so I'll get me out of the way. Um, you can just Diaspora United podcast uh, is where you want to go, or you can just go follow my, or not or, but you can also follow my Twitter if you want, because I post highlights. Uh, I try to post as many as I see, um, but that's 838 underscore Carlisle. Um, as far as the leagues, I think you've got the NWSL, which is heading towards like a, a massive playoff push. And then the playoffs, this is a great time to pay attention to the NWSL. So Paramount Plus, if you want to get them, there will be a few games on CBS Sports Network as well. Definitely want to watch those because just about every game is going to have playoff implications. If you look at the table right now, just Google NWSL and look at the standings. It's 
tight. <laughs> it is tight. Even though six teams in a 12-team league make the playoffs, it's tight and it's going to be fun. Um, I think you'll see a lot of the leagues in Europe start to kick off as well. Um, they're on a little bit of a break because of the World Cup, but um, the WSL uh, league, that's the English league, absolutely. If you want to see Sam Kerr play, play for Chelsea. Um, she plays for Chelsea. I think a lot of the players as well that you saw on the, so does Lauren James. She plays for Chelsea as well. Um, but Arsenal has a great team uh, as well in that league. Manchester City has a lot of talent, but their coach sucks. Uh, <laughs> uh, I also think like looking at the trying to like the, the Women's Champions League, when that comes back around, absolutely. Uh, that's the one, definitely one to pay attention to. Um, man, Liga F, uh, which is in Spain, D1 Arkema, which is the France League. Pay attention to all of these. I think ATA football, ATA uh, football is a good place to go to start to watch some of these games. Um, and then Liga Mekis Femenil. Uh, they're in season right now. I think believe they just started their season. They're probably a, few, a handful of games in. But Marta Cox, we talked about her free kick banger. She went back to the league in Mexico, and about a day or two after doing that, did the same thing. Scored another one. Banger. So, like, yeah, there's plenty of players to watch uh, in Liga Mekis Femenil. And also that Mexico team, when they, when, they, when they get it together and find the right mm-hmm. coach and system – they're going to be a problem. There's a ton of talent in Mexico and a lot of it plays in that league. So yeah, there's plenty of reason to check that league out. Yeah. And we live in a, in a golden age of access to football. I mean, you mentioned Paramount plus, I think the WSL is on ESPN plus a lot of teams will show their own games on YouTube uh, live. So not, not replays. I watched plenty of Chelsea uh, women's team or women's games on YouTube. I think that women's champions league is on YouTube as well. So if, if the zone, wanna... but I don't know if the zone is gonna like start charging people mm. soon. So, but but yeah, that if if they don't, then take advantage of it certainly this yeah. year because it's gonna it's not gonna be free forever. For sure, for sure, which is a good thing, right? Yeah, uh, correct. It's always good. Yes. Um, and there's always you know the other unmentionable sites and stuff that you can find this uh, find these <laughs> games on. Um, we don't need to talk about those, but they're there. Right. So if you want it, it's out there. Yes. Um, so thanks, Andre. Really appreciate it. Thank you again for your expertise, for your tactical analysis, for your passion, all that. Uh, best of luck to you and, you know, your endeavors and everything that you're working on. As far as us, you can find us on any, basically all the major podcasting platforms. Make sure to leave us a review. Make sure to follow us on all the uh, major social media networks. We're also coming out with a newsletter uh, pretty soon, which we'll be announcing this week. So make sure you subscribe to that as well. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me.